Yes, thank you, Phil, and thank you to everyone who's been part of this weekend. It's been great to be here with you in this place. And actually, it, it reminds me of the, the story that I'm beginning with of another uh, spiritual retreat that I was on. It was a couple of months ago, and it's, it was a moment when I became more deeply aware of what our connection to air really is. I was at a spiritual retreat with a group of interfaith climate leaders, a Mennonite among other Christians, but also Jews and Muslims. And as part of our worship, we would go into the wilderness and experience the presence of the Spirit in sacred wild places in Maine. I was sitting on the edge of a lake, getting ready to jump in. And I imagined myself sinking down into it because I've been meditating on the prayer of the prophet Jonah, who describes himself sinking deep into the sea with seaweed wrapped around his head. Um, but now I realize that he was using poetic license. Because when I jumped into the lake, I did go down about 10 feet, but I immediately started to float back up again. Cold water enveloped me. I tried to push myself down again, only to float up again. I wanted to lament in the depths like Jonah had, but I kept popping up. Which was convenient because I also discovered that I couldn't hold my breath like I thought I could. And I kept having to come up for air anyway. I, who had once played tuba and trumpet in school. But I wanted to mourn the state of our airs and mourn the state of our land and water there in the depths of the lake. As I exited the water and started to sun myself on the dock, I realized that while my body was no longer enveloped in water, it was still enveloped in something. Uh, Air is not nothing. It wasn't that I moved from water to nothing. I was now enveloped in air, and in a much deeper way than water, but it's something we don't often think about because it's just always with us. We are part of the air, and the air is part of us. As Laura mentioned, uh, nitrogen and oxygen make up the majority of air. Carbon dioxide, a major greenhouse gas, is actually only four hundredths of a percent. And methane, an even more powerful greenhouse gas, is twenty thousandths of a percent. So twenty thousandths of the TH there at the end. And how amazing that these trace amounts of these greenhouse gases have such a powerful effect because of the way they absorb infrared radiation from the sun. So we live and move and have our being in the air. And as Mennonite biblical scholar Ted Hebert says, uh, also we have, we live, well actually he, he gets this from uh, Paul, we live and move and have our being in God as well. And he makes the point that in Hebrew, they're really not that distinct from one another. There's only one word for air, breath, wind, spirit, and atmosphere in Hebrew, and I mentioned it yesterday, it's Ruach. The Ruach of God is at the very beginning of creation, hovering over the waters. In Psalm 104, which we read yesterday, but also had as part of our litany today. And just a little note, the, the litany says breath in one place, and then it says spirit in another, but in 
future, it's all the same thing. It's all breath, or it's all spirit. And, and so the translations often hide, hide this. Our passage today uses a synonym for breath. God creates this clay thing, as the uh, children's time person pointed out. But it doesn't become a living being until God breathes into it, and then they are a living creature, an Adam. Breath brings life. In English we use different words for breath and air, and yet maybe he was a little closer to the truth when it doesn't distinguish these. Because what is the difference between breath and air? Air becomes our breath, our breath becomes the air. We're enveloped in it, and that air interpenetrates our bodies, becomes part of our bodies, our lungs take that and turn it into our bodies, and it becomes part of our very beings. This interaction between air and breath became uh, more real to many of us, I assume, here on, on the eastern part of the United States this summer as we breathe the smoke from Canadian wildfires. More than anything else, this brought climate change home to me. And it's kind of weird because I've experienced something like this before. I visited a friend in Seattle several years ago when they were having, it was their second year in a row of Canadian wildfires. We had hoped to eat outside, but uh, we couldn't because of what would happen to our bodies over time. And he lamented that we couldn't see the mountains across the sound, and he talked about how it felt apocalyptic to him because it was happening a second summer in a row. So I've experienced this before, but there was something about having it be at home that just hit me because I couldn't escape. I wasn't going to get on a plane or something to get away from it. It had come home to roost. And it was summer in Indiana. Do you know anything about northern Indiana? Lake Michigan likes to send us a lot of moisture, which means a lot of clouds. So this was the time of year when I was supposed to be getting sun, and I was supposed to be playing outside, and instead it was overcast and my throat hurt, and my plans to go biking on the pumpkin vine nature trail had to be canceled. So we're utterly dependent on air. We can go for a few hours without water and not be thirsty, and for half a day and not be without food and not be hungry, but it only takes minutes for us to need air, and as I learned in the lake, it really just takes me a minute before I need another breath. And air also connects us to the past and the present. Uh, the air we breathe was the air that Jesus breathed, the very molecules he breathed, for as my Mennonite Pueblo Indian friend Sarah Augustine says, we live in a closed system. This is all recycling that's going on. These aren't new molecules. And the air is fragile. We, um, we think of the atmosphere as huge and indestructible, but I first saw an image like this uh, with Al Gore. And breathable air is this thin, fragile layer around the globe. Mountaineers refer to the dead zone as about 20 6,000 feet, a little less than five miles high, and that's uh, a little less than the summit of Mount Everest. So in other words, um, if you could go straight up in a vehicle like a car at 60 miles per hour, you wouldn't be able to breathe after five minutes going up. It's that, it's that close to us, that, that, that roof of, of what, where we can live. The 
it's much smaller than you realize. It's not limitless and huge. And it's this air that's endangered by human activity. Many things contribute to greenhouse gas emissions. They're called greenhouse gases because they act like the glass of a greenhouse, trapping more of the sun's warmth, creating warmer conditions. Before the Industrial Revolution in the mid-1800s, carbon dioxide was 288 parts per million, just one way to measure how much there is. This morning, it was 419 parts per million, a 50% increase, and the burning of fossil fuels is the major element. But as uh, Tristan Nussbaum mentioned in our group yesterday, cows emit a powerful greenhouse gas as well, methane. We eat a lot of meat, so there are a lot of cows emitting, emitting gas. So not eating meat is a major way to reduce emissions. I'm not a vegetarian, uh, though I try to limit my meat intake to once a day in small portions. That also keeps me a bit healthier. The agriculture and land use uh, contributes 24% of emissions. And I've just posted uh, one kind of graphic that shows how to think about this. Uh, I'm not sure that you can read it. But in any case, it, it just gives you some sense of the sizes. I'll go through that list. Uh, electricity production is 25%. So starting on this side and going over. Um, industry is 21 Transportation is 14%, 6% of emissions are buildings, and then a final 10% is various energy-related emissions. Now this graphic also notes two carbon sinks. These are things that actually take more carbon than they, than they release. So healthy forests do that, and the ocean also does that. Now this graphic comes from a group called Project Drawdown. It's a fairly, it's a database kind of, uh, data-driven kind of project. Drawdown refers to the time when we not only reach net zero, where we're uh, taking in as much carbon as we're emitting, but actually that we are starting to draw down the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. And they say that this is possible if we do all this stuff that they are saying. Uh, the, the next graphic, shows the general uh, table, shows the general framework for solutions, the five areas that I just mentioned, support sinks, forests and oceans, and improve society is something we add in there. Here they mean health and education, and, and they're talking about empowering women, educating and empowering women, because that tends to reduce family sizes. I think they should include in improving society having responsive governance, because I think a major problem, and I'll talk about this, is uh, that we need more responsive governments. And then, I, again, I don't know if you can read this, um, all right, but, but they, one of the cool things on, on their website, so this is just a, a, a screenshot, is they let you check out oh, about a hundred solutions, and, and they list them in terms of effectiveness. So, added, added utility scale, solar and wind energy is at the top. But they have some things that you wouldn't expect, like eating a plant-rich diet, reducing food waste, things like distributed solar, which would be solar panels on your home, that's a little further down the list, but still in the top 10, family planning is there. Refrigerants are there because that's another very powerful greenhouse gas. Now, clean cooking is in the top 10, 
it's not the brouhaha about gas stoves uh, here in the U.S., uh, though it turns out that having open fires in your home is not great for your air quality. Um, but this is actually, these are all global solutions. These are things that we want to do globally. And so this is referring to low and middle income families where 43% of families still cook their food on coal or wood burning stoves. And again, uh, it's a source of a, of a major greenhouse gas, black carbon. And so moving towards more, um, towards say solar stoves or uh, biomass gas stoves is one way to work at that. Now, again, I'm not sure how well you can see this, but I, I wonder if there's anything on here that you're expecting, or, or that you don't see on here that you're expecting. There's two things that stand out to me. One of them is recycling is not in the top ten. Uh, and most people kind of think of recycling, that's how you know you're an environmentalist, is if you recycle. Like, that's just basic. It is in the, it is towards the upper side, it's in the mid-30s, recycling. Actually, a little lower, and another one that's not on here that you might expect is that electric cars is more like the 40, 40th most effective solution. Whoops. I'll get to, I'll get to Todd Young soon. Um, I'm the proud owner of a Chevy Bolt. I love it. Uh, I don't think I'm ever going back to an internal combustion engine, an ICE. Uh, but producing them is environmentally problematic. I can also imagine that, that electric cars aren't higher because most of the world, most people don't own cars. And so uh, it's not really the, the top solution. So they have higher on the list of things like public transit, carpooling, and, and more fuel efficient trucks, which haul so much of the things that we use. So getting a, an electric car may be the best thing on your uh, family's list of things to do, but this is talking about global kinds of things. And these aren't future solutions. These are solutions that current technology exists. Um, so if you're interested in this, you can Google Drawdown. You can see the list for yourself. It's interactive. As, so the cool thing is that there's all these things we can do. The sad thing, as I said yesterday, is we haven't done this. We are still increasing our carbon emissions year after year. And that brings us to a difficult issue, which are the social and political barriers that keep us from these solutions, or at least from adopting them more widely. So I think it's critical for us to advocate for a change of a way of life that is, brings us more in harmony with God's creation and God's breath. So now we get to go to Senator Young. Um, so we need policies that move us toward these solutions. They need to be policies that include everyone, not just middle-class Americans. How can people use public transit if there's none available? And while some of us can afford to install solar panels in our home, homes, uh, many of us can't. All of us can support moving public utilities towards more electricity generated in renewable ways. I don't have solar panels in my home, but I have gone to local meetings advocating for installing solar installations. One local meeting I was at with my neighbors, uh, it was a guy who had been a pig farmer for many years, so he had like a thousand dollar operation, and people were complaining about 
Uh, they said they would prefer that he'd go back to his pig farm than to have a solar installation. I spoke as a, as a Christian pastor saying, I thought, we need to move towards more solar and it's a great opportunity for our community. So, I think we need to move towards more advocacy. And it can be uncomfortable because it requires us to speak about something that we're maybe not comfortable speaking about. And most of us don't trust up here again. I'm advancing that rather than my notes. <laughs> Um, but I think it, it can make a, a big and lasting difference. Advocacy includes climate-friendly policies, reducing emissions. It also includes climate justice, that those most affected by climate change are often those, and most vulnerable to it, often have not done much uh, to cause it. And so it means trying to advocate, advocating for the most vulnerable, the poor, the marginalized, black, indigenous, and people of color. And we can vote as if climate change matters. We can participate in strikes, in public actions to encourage the needed change. My own advocacy has focused now uh, on talking to leaders in Washington, D.C. Here I am with the Indiana group of climate writers from Anabaptist Climate Collaborative. It used to be the Center for Sustainable Climate Solutions, and we did a climate ride a couple of years ago uh, that you may have heard about. And so uh, the senator, the Republican senator in my state, Todd Young, actually met with us. Republicans are seen as preventing responses to climate change, but I've also met at the office of my very conservative Republican senator, Mike Braun, and he is a co-founder of the Bipartisan Climate Caucus. This is one of the staff members that I'm with here. Uh, and he authored legislation to help farmers adopt more carbon-friendly kinds of practices and becoming carbon sinks on their farms. This past February, in the group with John Stolzfus, we all went to our different districts, and I met my district congressman, Rudy Yakum, in the U.S. House of Representatives. I was with um, these pastors, and Rudy is a conservative Republican who drives a Tesla. So he stayed over the 30 minutes time that he had allotted for us. He just done a Bible study that morning, so we were talking to him a little bit about that. But I mostly uh, credit my friend Dave Mosier, uh, the, big, the big guy there, I guess a couple of them are, uh, because he can connect with people at a personal level, but he could also challenge them when he disagreed. And he had spent a lot of time in Northern Ireland during the Troubles, so I think he learned something there. His family also has the oldest Ford car dealership in the U.S., and this gave him some credibility as we were talking about recycling car batteries and, and more responsible mining practices. One of the interns from Anabaptist Climate Collaborative, Michael Buckwalter, actually had drafted the uh, policy statement that we were using as we talked to the leaders that day. Our group yesterday that, that Tristan was part of, uh, Phil Helmuth was also a part of that, and I thought I saw him sitting there, but I know he's here. Yeah, there he is. Um, we learned that he has many connections with FEMA uh, at, the, at the federal level through his work with Mennonite Disaster Service and FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency that works with responses to natural disasters or that increasingly calling them climate disasters. 
Not that they're necessarily caused by, but, but certainly the number and intensity have increased incredibly. So uh, one thing our group thought of is, is that uh, Phil knows a, a Mennonite pastor who used to be the head of FEMA, who could uh, come and, and meet with Parkview, talk about national policy and how we respond to these disasters. Yet another form of advocacy is marches and protests. I haven't done much of this since the beginning of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, but I'm trying to retrain myself. And, and actually, uh, next weekend, and Baptist Climate Collaborative is organizing a group from Harrisonburg. We have two carloads that we're hoping to take. Let me know if you're interested in going to the March to End Fossil Fuels in New York City, connected with the meeting at the United Nations. If you're looking for something more practical, uh, another friend, Pastor Steve Thomas at Mennonite Men has a campaign called Joining Trees, and their goal is to plant one million trees by 2030. So I've been emphasizing human action for this middle section of the sermon. This is good Anabaptist practice to talk about what we can and should do. But I want to come back to the Ruach of God, the breath, or spirit of God in our world. The atmosphere is a gift of God, and it is a gift endangered by human action. And while the atmosphere is a gift of God, it is also the power of God. We often center ourselves in God's will, like it all revolves around us. But it is God's will, and God is at work in this world in ways that we don't understand. God breathes life into the world, God waters new life, God provides vibrant soil. So actually, while I have little hope in our ability to turn things around, I have much more hope in the breath of God, in the recreative potential of God's world. The soil is this amazing place where all the time death is being turned into life. I don't mean by that that everything will be okay, but God will miraculously pull us out of our predicament. Ask the prophet Jeremiah about how that kind of thing works out. In general, the prophets warn that we can expect the natural consequences of idolatry and injustice, and those are the issues that we're dealing with. And as we will do in our confession in a moment, I want us to remember what we have done and to note that we do need to change our ways. We do need to repent. But I also just want us to remember the breath of God. That God has clearly created this planet for life. And even for all the death we're trying to give the planet, the planet is so committed to life, the spirit of life, the breath of life is bringing renewal all the time. I don't know what that renewal looks like, but the breath of God is more powerful than we are. So, it becomes all the more essential for us to stay connected with God's creation, to stay connected with God's breath, with God's intent, and to remember our more humble place in things and the beings that God has created. 
We're not at the center, but we're also not at the edge. We are invited to be part of what the breath of God is doing. So I invite us into, into that. I invite us into hope. Maybe not um, a certain hope, but at least a wild hope. A wild hope.